my sweet lord. Mm, my lord. Mm, my lord. I really want to see you. Really want to be with you. Really want to see you, Lord, but it takes so long, my Lord. My sweet Lord. I really want to know you. George Harrison, nicknamed the Quiet Beetle at the height of Beatlemania, George Harrison was indeed somewhat reserved compared to the other Beatles. He favored wit to Ringo's clowning, and he never indulged in either John's penchant for controversy or Paul's crowd-pleasing antics. George's measured and considered persona was reflected in his music, particularly in his clean composed lead guitar parts but also in his earliest songs for one he didn't seem to waste a line. With the introduction of psychedelics, spirituality, and Indian music in the mid-60s, his creative horizons expanded considerably, and he started to come into his own as a musician. He released a pair of experimental albums before he settled into a songwriting style that easily combined introspection with endearing melodies. He also developed a unique slide guitar technique that owed nothing to the blues. Later Beatles albums hinted at George's blossoming of talent. The White Album and Abbey Road contained some of his strongest work, with the latter including the standard Something, a song that's called the greatest love song of the past 50 years. Still, it wasn't until the 1970 release of All Things Must Pass the post-Beatles triple album that the general audience appreciated the depth of his talents. All Things Must Pass and its smash single, My Sweet Lord, a song that topped the charts around the world, cemented George's image as a superstar outside the Beatles, a reputation underscored by his 1971 superstar charity event, the Concert for Bangladesh, and 1973's Living in the Material World. His winning streak, though, hit some rough spots in the mid-70s with 1974's Dark Horse and 1975's Extra Texture, Read All About It. These albums slowed his momentum and led him to a respectable plateau where he stayed even after signing with his own record label, Dark Horse Records, in 1976 with the release of his album, 33 and One Third. Over the next six years, George recorded fairly steadily and racked up some hits as he slid into a relatively quiet phase, concentrating on raising his son, Danny, who was born to him and Olivia Harrison in 1978, and getting married to Olivia that same year. Also that same year, George started a film company, Handmade Films, with the intent of financing Monty Python's silver screen debut, Life of Brian. Though he did stay involved in music here and there, largely through live guest appearances popping up at charity concerts and tributes, and he also appeared on Dave Edmonds' oldies-inspired soundtrack for 1985's Porky's Revenge. 
George didn't have a fully fledged comeback until 1987's Jeff Lynne produced Cloud Nine. Thanks to the singles Got My Mind Set On You and When We Was Fab, the album became a top 10 hit around the world. Harrison quickly followed that record with the formation of the legendary supergroup The Traveling Wilburys, whose 1988 album Traveling Wilburys Volume 1 grew out of solo sessions for a Harrison B-side. The group unfortunately turned out to be George's last hurrah. After their final album in 1990, George turned towards the Beatles anthology reunion with Paul and Ringo, and then maintained a low social profile as he battled two types of cancer, tragically succumbing to lung cancer on November 29, 2001, about a month after the September 11th terrorist attacks. By that point, the world started to change drastically and rapidly. But his legacy as one of the most influential musicians of the 20th century was secure. Here we are 22 years later, in a world where George's music is more accessible than ever. Having the sole writing credit for the Beatles' most popular song on Spotify, and the only Beatles song with over a billion streams, Here Comes the Sun, you may be led to think that George's songwriting is the most appreciated out of the four Beatles. However, I think that we've barely just begun the full appreciation and reevaluation that his work deserves. Welcome back to the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast. I'm your host, Jack Lawless. I've often felt that George Harrison's post-Beatles solo music, with the exception of All Things Must Pass, is not discussed enough. With 12 studio albums, 10 if you don't count the experimental Wonderwall music and electronic sound, there are thousands of conversations to be had about George's 30-year career of truly amazing, introspective, thought-provoking, blissful, and sometimes outright bizarre music. And who better to invite to this conversation than two of the most intelligent and well-spoken and enthusiastic George Harrison fans that I can think of. I'd like to welcome back onto this podcast, Elliot Roberts and Rob Sheffield, who both accepted their invitations to join this discussion very enthusiastically, which leads me to believe we have a lot of fantastic opinions to talk about. For those of you joining us for the first time, Elliot Roberts is a YouTuber from Australia whose Beatles-focused YouTube videos have become wildly popular, with some gaining nearly a million views, and his opinions around post-Beatles solo music have been held in great regard in the Beatles community. And Rob Sheffield is an actual legend in the world of music journalism. He's a contributing editor at Rolling Stone magazine, and his 2017 book Dreaming the Beatles is one of the most popular books about the Beatles, and is always the first book that I recommend to anyone who wants to know more about John, Paul, George, and Ringo, and their legacy. I'm so excited to see where this conversation goes, and the things we can discover about George Harrison and his beautiful solo music. Elliot and Rob, thank you both so much for being the first guests to make return appearances on the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast. It is an honor to have you both on at the same time 
and discuss George Harrison in depth with you, especially considering that you both have worked on recent content about George. Elliot, you put out a nearly three-hour-long video reviewing every George solo album, and Rob, you wrote a beautiful article describing the importance and awesomeness of George's album, Living in the Material World. I'm just so excited to talk with you both. Thank you for having me on. It's it's an honor to be here with you both. I'm very excited for this conversation. Yeah, I'm very uh, very honored to be the Jeff Lynn in this wheelbarrow <laughs> all-star team. But uh, Jack and Elliot, I, I could not be more honored by the company. Thank you. Well, I am incredibly honored by the fact that you both wanted to participate in this roundtable discussion where we we give our takes on George's work and influence as a musician in 2023. And although some critics are starting to reevaluate George's contribution to music, so much of his best music still remains undiscovered by many, and I believe insufficiently discussed by nearly everyone. So let's start this episode by diving right into the big question, what are your top three George Harrison albums? Uh, okay. Well, considering I spent a lot of time, you know, figuring this out myself, uh, I can safely say that my three favorite beginning with number three is his self-titled George Harrison album, uh, from, I believe 1979. Um, yeah, just love that. I think it's one of his most underrated as well. Uh, followed by Living in the Material World, and then, of course, All Things Must Pass. I've never met anyone whose uh, favorite George Harrison album is not All Things Must Pass, uh, but who knows? Who knows? Rob might surprise us. Yeah, uh, honestly, because uh, I've been listening so hard this spring to Living in the Material World that I briefly considered uh, adopting a uh, clever and contrarian pose that it is in fact better than all things must pass. <laughs> and uh, yet that seems uh, just, uh, uh, I'm not prepared even to go that far at this point. Um, mm-hmm. They're, they're so different is the thing. They're so different um, for me. Number one, all things must pass. Not the most original decision in the world. Some people say that that's the best Beatles album. I used to argue against that. And yet I find that All Things Must Pass just grows over time, uh, which, you know, we'll get into. Living in the Material World is an album that means more to me every year. It's very much, my arc with that is very much like with Abbey Road, that like loved it as a little kid, uh, sort of faded out of my main interest for like my 20s and teens. And I have fallen madly back in love with it as an adult uh, without really planning to. And uh, Living in the Material World is just a huge record for me. My number three is, appropriately, 33 and a third from 1976, which is one of, as we'll discuss, the many, many, many George albums that people just don't even really know exists. And even people who love George Harrison uh, don't happen to know about the existence of this record. And a few of his records fall into that category. This is one where there wasn't a hit that you can point people to as a way into the rest of the album, but it is always a delight for me to hear. And uh, I, I know all three of us will have a lot to say about that album, but 33 and a third is a very strong number three for me. You know, I agree with both of you because my top three seem to be an average of both of yours. My number one (laughs) 
is All Things Must Pass. Number two is George Harrison Self-Titled. And coming in at number three is 33 and a third. Wow. Again, polling uh-huh. in third place. I, I, I feel like we've pissed a lot of people off by none of us having Cloud9 in our top threes. What I've learned <laughs> from making that video is that r- people really love Cloud9. Um, and I think it's a good album. I think it's good. But yeah, I would agree with you. Even 33 and a third is better than Cloud9 as well. It's just... I just think because that one was so popular and it was like his big kind of comeback record, it's just the record that people know. But if they knew the kind of songs that were in his late 70s output, they would they would reconsider because, um, yeah, as, as, as much as I think it's great, he, I think he was just doing more exciting stuff in the 70s. That's an interesting one also because it intersects with so many stories. Yeah, so many, you know, the Dylan story, the Petty story, the Roy Orbison story, uh, just because that was when he was becoming a whole new type of L.A. rock star, which is funny because at the Beatles, he was the only one who really pursued the role of an L.A. rock star. <laughs> but I'm with you guys both on the self-titled 1979 album, uh, which it would be my number four favorite. That's uh, an absolutely beautiful album and uh, very... I remember so vividly when nobody seemed to like that album. So I love that it's now sort of getting its due historically. Mm. You know, I, I think that I would rate Cloud Nine maybe four or five of his albums. That might be a little further down in the pack for me. Same. Yeah. yeah. Really? I, I, <laughs> let's talk about that. It's, it's a great 1987 uh, mainstream LA rock album. Um, with both the uh, pluses and minuses of that particular genre. And some aspects of it have held up brilliantly, and some some are a little limited by the production. And uh, then there's a hit single that I just don't like at all. And I'm um, <laughs> sorry, I have tried many times over the years to find a nice word for uh, Got My Mind Set On You. And uh, <laughs> alas, none of those words, none of those words come to mind for me. I just, I think it's one of the... Uh, the weakest Beatles solo singles in their, in all four solo Beatles catalogs. I, I think Weird Al put it best with his parody of it by just singing, this song is just six words long. I mean, like, yes. that's that's pretty much it. That that's, really, that's that what's really happening says here. it all. That says it all. <laughs> it's yeah. really, everything about it is surprising. Nothing about it would suggest George Harrison to you. It's so funny that this is the guy who begins the 80s by singing songs like Unconsciousness Rules and Blood from a Clone and how mainstream pop music is garbage because of the synthesizers and the dance beats. And then it's like the classic proverb of, you know, choose your enemies wisely because that's who you turn into because he became uh, the uh, the biggest offender of all four Beatles with with that regard. Got My Mind Set on You is a song that does not seem the least bit George Harrison-like in either execution or imagination to the point where I kind of admire it as a contrarian <laughs> achievement. You have to be a real crank like George to, to steal your will to do something like that. Absolutely. That's kind of what brings Cloud9 down for me in like my ranking is that I feel like I'm listening to George Harrison at a distance. Everything, every other album he's created, he can't help but make it so personal. And, you know, he, he can't sing about things that he doesn't believe in that aren't, you know, in his heart. And that's why I love him as an artist. And then suddenly with cloud nine, it's, it, you know, it, he's, it's just an LA rock album. It sounds a bit more generic of that time. 
And I still do not know why, at least where I live, my classic rock station and uh, pretty much any time I hear George Harrison on the radio, it's got my mindset on you. They have his whole discography to play of, of singles and it's still just got my mindset on you. And I, and I feel like it's just so limiting to his, um, to the breadth of uh, his discography that that is mostly these days what people hear. Um, arguably one of his worst singles. Yeah. It, it really is like if Spies Like Us became the song that Paul McCartney was most famous for. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It would be absurd. Absurd. Not knocking what he did in the Beatles, but he really peaked with Spies Like Us. It, it, the songs, they don't sound a million miles apart either. You, you can't even hear that song on streaming, I'm pretty sure, Spies Like Us. It's it's yeah. quite inaccessible to a modern audience and perhaps it's for the best. <laughs> so let's keep talking about uh, George's songs. Now that we've settled his worst, let's talk about his most underrated songs, which Three George songs do you both feel are his most underrated or undervalued? All right. Um, underrated. I would have to go with my number one and one of my favorite George Harrison songs, full stop, is is Be Here Now from Living in the Material World. Um, I just think that that song transcends uh, listening to music. I, I don't even know quite how to put it into words. In the video, I call it a magical song because I think that's what it makes me feel. It, it feels like he's accessed something higher in Be Here Now and communicates it so beautifully and so quietly and softly. It really is the best of what George Harrison was able to do musically. And it's the kind of song that is the most different to John or Paul in terms of their abilities and their talents. Um, yeah, that I don't know why pe more people aren't talking about Be Here Now. Uh, I, I just think it's so special and wonderful. Um, and I, I genuinely tear up every time I hear it. It just has that ability to do that um, for me. And yeah, I would then say the song, the opener of his self-titled Love Comes to Everyone. I know it's a bit cheesy with that clavinet and everything else, but there's such a good bass line on that song from Willie Weeks. Uh, it's just so happy. It kind of sets the tone of that album so well. Like, you, you know that there's nothing too heavy here. It's just infectious soft rock with lush instrumentation. And, you know, things were happening nice for George at that time. You know, he... He'd uh, finally got a son. He was finally settled down with Olivia. He was going to Hawaii. He was tripping on magic mushrooms. And he was just, he was just feeling good. And you feel that when you, when you listen to Love Comes to Everyone. It's a song I will put on to just feel better about myself and my day. Um, and also from that album, oh, there's actually quite a few I could pick. But... <laughs> I, I, I'm torn. I'm, I'm going to go, go two more. You, you asked for three. I'm going to give you four. Let's I do would it. <laughs> say Your Love is Forever from the same album, uh, a song he was originally going to do as an instrumental, but he added lyrics, and it's just one of the best uses of... Or one of the best examples of George's profound gift for melody, I think, um, Your Love is Forever. It's so simple. It's a beautiful guitar. Uh, it's just a stunning song. 
And finally, um, Life Itself uh, from Somewhere in England. That is one of the few songs that, a uh, few spiritual songs that was allowed to exist on that album after it was rejected by Warner Brothers and he had to give up songs like Sat Singing for songs like Blood from a Clone and that. Um, but Life Itself is George's spiritual vision set to music. You know, it's it's where he unabashedly sings about the higher power in his life and and what it means to him. It's kind of like a more rousing version of of be here now in a way. I just I just think when you when we allow George to sing about what he what truly means the most to him, that is when we are are gifted with the best of what he's capable of. And so yeah, that they're, they're my picks. Awesome picks, Elliot. Great choices. Those are such great picks. And you know what? I had be here now on my list too. But after hearing you describe it so beautifully, I'm not going to try to top that. So I'm swapping it out of my top three. Um, My number three is a song called Cosmic Empire that George Harrison making some of the mystic decisions for which the rest of us will always, always behold with mystery and wonder and shock chose not to release Uh, a song that he demoed for All Things Must Pass. And it's astounding when you listen to All Things Must Pass. And for years, the joke about the album was, you know, triple album. You really should have cut it down to size. You listen to the demos that he recorded for that album in just a few days, just him and his acoustic guitar sometimes with, you know, like a friend playing along. And you realize that should have been a five record set because he had (laughs) so many songs to put on it and he just couldn't fit them on. Um Cosmic Empire, a brilliant song that, quite frankly, any other singer-songwriter in 1970 would have been so proud to call his own. He would have not only released it on the album, he would have named the album after it. He would have released it as a single, and he would have retired and spent the rest of his career singing that as his greatest hit. George thought, I don't even have room for that on my three-record set. Uh, It's a great example of like how many great songs that George Harrison had in him in that period. And with Cosmic Empire, there were so many from that those sessions. Daradun, which is a song that, of course, he wrote in, in Ricky Cash, Beautiful Moment, where he's playing it in the anthology series. And Ringo says, I remember this one, after mm-hmm. not hearing it for you know all those years. But it just it triggers that beautiful, fond Beatles memory for Ringo of being in India, which we all thought Ringo didn't even remember fondly. Um, or Om Arayom Gopala Krishna so many amazing songs that could have been on that album and weren't but to me Cosmic Empire is just to me just an absolute top tier George song so that's my number three Uh, my number two is Here Comes the Moon which of course a song that we all know and love from uh, Elliot's beloved George Harrison self-titled album which is so great that's a song that People look at the title and they snicker and they think they have a clear idea what's going on in the song. No, it's not a joke. It's really not all that deeply connected to the other Here Comes the song that George happened to write about a heavenly body in the solar system. Here Comes the Moon is, as Elliot described that period, he's hanging out in Hawaii. He's happy in love. He's, he's found peace with Olivia. He's uh, sampling some of the uh, the local magic mushrooms and 
Here Comes the Moon is just a song full of wonder. It's so full of 70s R&B. And the easiest thing to overlook about George's genius, whether it's the 60s or the 70s or, or later, is that he was always a, a huge fan of American R&B. And that was always what infused him as a singer, songwriter, and guitarist. Here Comes the Moon is a song that, honestly, it, it sounds like a Tom Bell, Philly Soul kind of song, except it's unmistakably in that George sort of voice. and. To me, that's just a beautiful, helpless song. He's putting the title there. He knows that it's going to punch people's buttons. He knows he's going to provoke people. But it's honestly just such a beautiful, gentle, meditative kind of song without being super verbal or super solemn. I think it's just like flat out, unbelievably beautiful George Harrison song. Again, for a singer-songwriter of the 70s to have a song of that caliber that he isn't even going to put out as a single or even really ask people to listen to. And because Elliot chose four, I'm going to sneak in my bonus pick before I get to number one. And it's uh, another song from Living in the Material World. Uh, No, actually, it's not. I switched that out. It's it's a song from uh, an album that's kind of on a lower mystical plane. Uh, The Porky's Revenge soundtrack. But uh, I Don't Want to Do It, a song that, uh, of course, Bob Dylan, a Bob Dylan song that, you know, during the period where he and George were just hanging out, giving genius songs to each other that... Again, anybody else in the business would have killed for these songs, and George and Bob just thought they were fun little things that they passed back and forth. Um, with I Don't Want to Do It, it's a song that he demoed for All Things Must Pass, chose not to put on the album. Then after putting out records for years and years without putting that song on it, just he thought it couldn't liven up any of the, the spottier records that he was making. He just he kept that one and waited till the soundtrack of one of the cheesiest movies in Hollywood history. And then he did his incredibly beautiful version of I Don't Want to Do It. To me, that's George's perversity, his sense of humor, his eccentricity at its absolute maximum. And my number one most underrated George song, that's a very easy call for me. It's one of my very, very favorites. It's a song from the album 33 and a Third, and it's called Pure Smokey. And that is a song that is also steeped in 70s R&B. It's not even a metaphor. He's singing about Smokey Robinson. He's singing about his hero. He's singing about the songwriter who made John and Paul want to be songwriters, which made George want to be a songwriter. They would flip through the record racks, and if they saw W. Robinson in the credits, they knew that this was a good song, just as they did with Goff and King or any of the other songwriters that they idolized. And Pure Smokey is such a beautiful song. George has a very clear awareness that the audience is not paying maximum attention to him right now. He's not trying to write a hit. He's not trying to write a big religious statement or philosophical statement, but he just sends up a very gentle prayer. He's thanking the Lord for giving the world Smokey Robinson. And what better thing could you thank the world for? And it's just really beautiful that he does this song and he sounds so full of humor and he's not trying very hard. It's He makes it sound effortless. And just this incredible soul beauty just pours out of his voice, out of his guitar, out of the chords. He's obviously been listening to a lot of Al Green and Willie Mitchell and Stevie Wonder. And to me, it just kind of sums up the genius of George Harrison, that he could put so much spiritual grace and so much humor into this song that he knows most people are gonna overlook. But to me, Pure Smokey is one of the absolute most beautiful songs he or any of the Beatles ever wrote. That ability of George's to create um, such incredible soul music, soul and R&B, was really something that I think you can really just point to to George Harrison of the four Beatles. 
um, in terms of talent and aptitude. You know, uh, you know, I love Paul McCartney. I love his musical output, but soul music was never really something that I think he was able to tackle as well as George Harrison. I think there was just something truly inside of George that allowed him to access that that kind of um, soul and R and B potential. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, great, really great picks. <laughs> well, and it's funny that for all four Beatles, that whenever they were drifting and they felt like they'd lost their artistic inspiration, they could always come back to that, their first love that they shared, American R&B, American early rock and roll. Uh, really beautiful how, for all the Beatles, Smokey Robinson was such an icon and that they all wrote songs that are so smitten with Smokey. I mean... It was something that they had consistently all through their solo careers. There's that great outtake from the White Album where they're trying to do an early version of While My Guitar Gently Weeps, and it's going great. It sounds phenomenal. And then George reaches for a high note, and he can't hit it, and it just ruins the take. And everybody laughs, and he says, sorry, I tried doing a smoky, and I aren't smoky. <laughs> <laughs> but that's one thing all the Beatles had in common. They, they all... They idolized this music, and it always reminded them why they did what they did. Absolutely. Yeah, isn't it funny how how much they changed and influenced music that they actually never let go of their early influences like Smokey Robinson <laughs> and Chuck Berry and Elvis Presley? And all of that music that George produced in like the mid to late 70s is filled with that soul like you were talking about, Rob. One of my favorite tracks... Uh, by George is Beautiful Girl and that, that's a great example of that I think and that song I believe actually was first demoed during the All Things Must Pass sessions way back in 1970 which makes me think that like a 70s soulful kind of song uh, like that was once a possible song for the Beatles like many of the All Things Must Pass songs were it's very rubber soul that song. Yes, it fits right yeah. into the kind of songwriting of rubber soul. Uh -huh. I think he, yeah, I think he started that singing about Patty, and then it ended up being a song about Olivia, which I, I, I think is interesting. A, a song that spans um, George's, you know, two key women in his life. Um, yeah, gorgeous song. Also, a wonderful guitar solo in in Beautiful Girl. One of that those is true, ones yes. that runs counter to the melody and it's just like George creating an incredible song within an incredible song just something he was able to do so well with his slide guitar yeah yeah and and speaking of George's slide guitar my second favorite George Harrison song is Marwa Blues off of Brainwashed mm. I see that song as the rightful heir to the be here now throne it's very meditative yeah it's so peaceful it's it's so beautiful and actually in 2004 during an interview with uncut magazine paul mccartney named marwa blues as one of his favorite songs of all time wow the only songs on his ipod what a great pick you're right about the connection with be here now which there's that beautiful soulful sustain that it has you know the bit of the sense of the drone yeah that's a beautiful song yeah absolutely and another cool thing about that song is that it doesn't have any lyrics it's like it's almost like very eastern in that sense where there's little to no expression of ego or self in that song it's just beautiful music 
And then I have to say my favorite George song at this moment is Dark Sweet Lady off of George Harrison's self-titled. What a great pick. What a beautiful song. Great love song. Beautiful reflection of his love for Olivia and appreciation of where he was in life at that moment in time. Another wonderful Spanish guitar solo as well. Yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah, I like that we all had picks from that album. It, 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 if you're listening to this podcast, go and listen to George Harrison's self-titled. Like, do, <laughs> do, do, do you need more convincing that it is an underrated masterpiece? It's so I thought we were going to like be able to argue about that album today, but looks like no need. It looks like we're all crazy <laughs> about it. Oh, yeah. I just love that album. Oh yeah, me too. There will there will be no tolerance for slander against either self-titled or thirty-three and a third on this podcast. <laughs> These are all such fascinating takes. Life life itself, like that's a such a fantastic song that is very easily overlooked. Yeah. Yeah. So easily overlooked. So much of that period of George's music, partly because he had no interest in also I guess marketing his his new albums at that time. <laughs> a, a, a lot of a lot of his music from the early '80s was about finishing up a contract with Warner Brothers so he could go and you know work in his garden. Um, but when he is tasked with creating music, and if you don't tell him to write songs about teenage love, he will create something like Life Itself. Ah, oh, it's 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 just. It's just really stunning. Yeah. yeah. So so now let's actually keep talking about great George songs, but through a new lens this time. Tell me the best song from your least favorite George Harrison album. Because, well, I, I don't think we've admitted our least favorite George album yet. Well, um, okay. My least favorite album is Extra Texture, brackets. Brackets! Read all about it. Uh, I look, I understand what George is going for with this record. I like that he really dives into soul and R and B. Uh, but I think it has really muddy production. I think that the recent Dolby Atmos, uh, remasters have kind of improved it a bit, but the songs are just so dour and you can tell he's not in a great place, which he wasn't, you know, the the albums always reflect George's state of mind, and he was in a pretty down place, and even called that album grubby in in later years. Uh, I just think it's a bit too sad. But that being said, I really love the opener. You, I mean, it's not a super complex song. It's just basically the words you uh, and a few other you know I she pronouns um, scattered in there and it was originally one going to be given to Ronnie Spector and you can even hear her guide vocal because she's got such a powerful voice underneath George's own vocals when you listen to that song Um, I just think it's like a thunderous propulsive um, banger of an opening number that just does not set the tone at all for what you're about to listen to. It almost like, you know, pulls you into a false sense of victory and, you know, upbeatness that it, you're, you're, you're going to listen. And, and when you look at the album artwork as well, it's bright, it's orange, it's fun, it's funny. You open it up and there's George's face with Oh Not Him Again written inside. There's, there's, there's just, you feel like you're about to listen to something light, maybe a bit funny, a bit tongue-in-cheek. 
And then you listen to the rest of Extra Texture and you, in the words of, I think maybe World of Stone, you want to put a pistol to your brain. Like it, it is, it is so depressing. Um, so that's, that, that's the thing. I, I hope it didn't get too dark there, but that is just the thing about <laughs> Extra Texture. I think it just is, it, yeah, it, it's too dour and sad of an album for me to, to, to truly love. But I love the song You. I think that's great. <laughs> I, I, I think that's a great pick. Uh, I have to admit, I love Extra Texture and You is one of my least favorite songs on it. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. Now the discussion starts. Perfect. That's so funny. So my Extra Texture <laughs> perspective could not be more opposite <laughs> because uh, that song is full of, I mean, it's a very erratic album to say the least. Um, mm. And uh, it's got, and as so often with George in the 70s, the best moments are when he isn't trying very hard. So uh, I, I tend to like the lazy songs on that album. Uh, like, you know, Ooh Baby, You Know That I Really Love You, which honestly, that's, that's a good track. That's pretty much the entire lyrics right there. And that's another yeah. Smokey Robinson tribute that's really even more shameless because it barely has any lyrics in it at all, except that he's, and he sweetly dedicates it to St- to, to Smokey Robinson in the sleeve notes, I guess, because he thought people wouldn't notice unless he mentioned it. Um, but yeah, I, I, I love that album. Uh, the other one, the other one I'll defend is uh, Tired of Midnight Blue, which is, like you said, it's a depressing song. There's a lot of depressing stuff on that album. And it, it, you could accuse Tired of Midnight Blue of being depressing as well. But uh, it's got a, a Steely Dan kind of feel in, in the music that I really like. Good cowbell. <laughs> Very good cowbell. Very good cowbell. Uh, so <clears throat> my least favorite George album. Uh, I have spent many, many, many years of my life trying to find something I like about somewhere in England. And I have failed so consistently. Um, <laughs> life itself is one of the, the better moments on it. But this is an album, it's part of how it's marked in my history and, and the history of Anybody who was around in the 80s is so many people bought this album because it had a hit single on it and because it had All These Years Ago, which was a song that had a very special resonance for people. It wasn't the greatest song in the world and it wasn't necessarily the best John Lennon tribute in the world. And in fact, uh, it uh, you wouldn't even really say that it was the kind of song that he would have played for jo- for John Lennon to his face and expected not to get a witheringly sarcastic comment about it. You can understand why it was a hit at the time and why it meant something to people. But as a result, almost everybody in the 80s had somewhere in England in their record collection. And so people tried really hard to listen to that whole album. So at least Gone Trapo, that was an album that came out and people realized that that was classic case of sometimes you can judge a book by the cover. You look at the cover <laughs> of the album and you know exactly every terrible decision that has gone into that album. And uh, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. Um, I love the version of Circles that ends that album, uh, which of course is a brilliant outtake from the White Album. And I even thought of having that as my favorite song from the worst George album. But I figured Circles, it's really a George Beatles song and it's cheating to have that as, as the, to count that as like the best song on his worst album. Whereas um, honestly, the, the song that is my favorite song on Somewhere in England is uh, a Hoagie Carmichael song, Baltimore Oriole. And 
I'm not saying it's even a great Hoagie Carmichael song, but it's a nice Hoagie Carmichael song. And the key is George isn't trying very hard when he sings it. And that's a real problem with George often in this period, uh, which is he oversings when he knows that the material is not up to snuff. And Baltimore Oriole, he figures, well, at least here's a song where it's a good melody, it's a good lyric, I can relax, and it actually sounds like he's having fun for just a few minutes of that album, and then it's over. <laughs> and so I got to go with Baltimore Oriole, which isn't even a George composition, but uh, to my mind and to my ears, that's that's the best he does on Somewhere in England. I'm very grateful that you gave me a new perspective on life itself, so I'm um, Really hoping that I'm going to fall for that one in the same way. But uh, again, also talk about what you said about George not marketing his strengths, you know, perhaps with ideal shrewdness, because that album begins with two of the worst songs that any of the Beatles ever wrote. Uh, Led from a clone and unconsciousness rules. When those are the first two songs on your album... You're basically saying, hey, I know all you teenagers who bought this record suck. Your taste in music sucks. Go back and listen to your disco, your new wave or whatever you're listening to. And uh, honestly, it takes real perseverance to continue past the first two songs. Yeah, he's he's really in his curmudgeon era on Somewhere in England. Um, it's it's like Blood from a Clone is a song knocking the the music industry and then right after Unconsciousness Rules is knocking all the people that then consume the songs of the same music industry. It's like a one-two punch of how he feels about being a recording artist in the early 80s and what, you know, the idea of creating music is for him. It's, I mean, I think Unconsciousness Rules musically is still a lot of fun. I think the band's putting in a ton of effort to at least make it a bit, you know, um, upbeat and danceable. Uh, but yeah, it is hard to get past the rather nihilistic lyrics. Uh, I, I will give you that. <laughs> also, if if uh, George isn't necessarily making the best case for his own philosophy of music as, you know, like if he's singing about how he's better than Olivia Newton-John and the Pointer Sisters or whoever he means in like these songs, um, he's not really up to their standards. So it's it's a case where he's really sort of undercutting his own argument. Um, something I love about Baltimore Oriole is the connection with Ringo, because I also, I happen to be a big fan of Ringo's sentimental journey as maybe you guys are too. I love, and I love Ringo's version of Stardust, you know, the most famous and most beloved Hoagie Carmichael song. And so I think of sort of that era of solo Beatles that begins with Ringo singing Stardust and ends with George singing Baltimore Oriole something really kind of beautiful in that they're both singing about birds and they're both singing these old songs that their moms loved. And, you know, there's a, there's a sweet connection there. That's really nice. Yeah. yeah. Don Trapo, not very good. Not very good. <laughs> is it? I'm hoping somebody will have a contrary defense of Gon Trapo to give me a new well, perspective on it. Gon Trapo was my least favorite album back in the day. Uh, I, I just couldn't see much at all that was redeemable of it you know i don't mind that's the way it goes as a song it's a little defeatist um and i'm still perplexed as to why it was one of the few songs not from all things must pass or living in the material world that made it to the concert for george possibly the most random pick i think joe brown sings it and 
like you, you just think about all the other songs uh, that that could have been performed, even something from Cloud Nine. But no, it's it's that's the way it goes. Um, so maybe that meant something extra special to George. I'm not sure. Uh, I think Mystical One, when you listen to his acoustic demo of that song, um, that's on a, it's like a bonus track on the album. It's really lovely. You listen to his original demo of Mystical One, it, it will give you a, an entirely different outlook on it. Um, you strip away all the, you know, cheesy 80s gloss and the uh, vocoder and the strange backup singers, um, all the all those odd effects that that al- album has, and you listen to just him talking, him him singing. Uh, it, it's it's quite it's quite beautiful. I, I I really do like that track, stripped st- stripped down to its bones. And Unknown Delight, one of the only songs he ever wrote about his child. You know, that's there's something quite special there. I, I, I think the thing about Gone Troppo is that it was an album made out of, you know, obligation with glimmers of flashes of brilliance um, and a, a wee bit of potential. But overall, the thing doesn't coalesce. But there are there are moments. Circles as well is, um, I think, a very cool, if very strange, uh, moment in the album. I've said before, there's no way to clear a room quicker than putting on the song Circles. <laughs> I think if you needed people to go home, you'd put that song on because um, it's scary as well. It's a scary yeah. and spooky song. Um, uh, but yeah, otherwise you've got like Grease, which is uh, basically an instrumental throwaway. My least favorite George Harrison song, "Baby Don't Run Away." Uh, oh my goodness, that's just terrible. Um, yeah, I'm just looking at the track list now. I really love you. Doesn't even sound like a George Harrison song. He's not even his voice isn't even uh, the, the key the, the key uh, melody line. And "Wake Up My Love" is really hack piece a hack piece if you boil it down it's you know making a similar to uh what was that other song uh, that warner brothers made him write similar to uh, teardrops from somewhere in england just these songs written with you know a punchy chorus vague lyrics about you know love and that kind of thing yeah, Gone Troppo I think is worth a listen just because of how bizarre and batshit crazy it is, like the album artwork. But uh, <laughs> yeah, not not one of his finest moments. I think I think Gone Troppo is a really interesting album, and I say that because I think in terms of in terms of songwriting, there are some really good songs on there. Yeah. For example, I think if you took like the cheesy synths and Star Wars-esque laser sounds out of Wake Up My Love, <laughs> you'd have a great pop song. I mean, it's kind of catchy, but mm. overall, Rob, I think you're right. There's just bad decisions all around with this album, especially when it comes to the wacky and zany overproduction of these songs, which gives all the songs like this off-balanced circusy feel. You know, which is too bad because I really do think the writing is there. Yeah, I, I, I think Pipes of Peace is generally a much better album than Gone Troppo, but I do liken it to his Pipes of Peace. Uh, it's, it was made around the same time. Both albums have kind of a silly, zany quality to them. 
that I guess was just something in the water in 1982, 1983, is that ex-Beatles <laughs> were just, you know, wanting to get a little too whimsical, I think. Um, and I don't, I can't even recall what that album would have been in Ringo's discography, what he was making. Was it Stop and Smell the Roses? I'm not sure. Um, old Wave. Uh, old Wave. Yeah, there you go. So, yeah, just just something strange about that early 80s periods and the Beatles, um, the post-John Lennon uh, period, yeah. It must have been really hard as a classic rock musician in the 80s. I mean, mm. that was a time where the world and music was changing very quickly and you had all this new technology in the studio and new sounds that were popular but totally foreign to you. And any embracement of those sounds would make you seem like a sellout, but also any rejection of them would render your music obsolete. So... It must have been a difficult position as an artist to try to decide and make decisions on what to do next. Yeah, also, it requires a skill set that uh, many of them simply did not have. Uh, honestly, you look at the wreckage of the uh, 60s rock legends and the albums they made in 81, 82, 83, and uh, it's a sorry roll call that unfortunately includes like Gontrapo and Somewhere in England that... Those are both, as, as Elliot said, those are albums of a guy who hates his job. He wants to get back and do his gardening. This is this is an annoying interruption of his garden time. Um, but look at a lot of the albums that some of the most famous rock stars were making in 1982. And gosh, you know, you look at uh, that Who album. It's hard with the video game on the cover. And you listen through that album. It's funny because Pete Townsend was writing great songs at that time. He put most of them on his solo album that year and listen to it's hard and think, wow, one of the biggest, most popular bands in the world released this album and like really, really expected people to buy it just because it was them. And <laughs> there was a lot of that going around in the, uh, the old school rockers of that era. And some of them felt out of their depth because they weren't really up to responding to the challenge or the way that some of them were. But uh, a lot of them weren't, and George certainly didn't feel he was. I Yeah, I think the reason why Paul McCartney fared a little bit better in the early 80s with Tug of War and even Pipes of Peace is that I think he was at least attempting at harnessing that sound of, you know, the early 80s. Uh, but, I mean, particularly with McCartney too. Uh, I mean, that was, that's one of my favorite Paul McCartney albums. I love McCartney too, and it's... But it's an it's an embracing of you know synths and odd technologies. Whereas George Harrison, I, I, I watched a lot of interviews with him around this time, as much as there is, which there aren't a lot because again he wasn't doing a lot of press. So I, I think I've seen everything he's 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 done in terms of um, interviews. And what really sticks out is his total aversion to any other kind of musical genre. There's an interview with. Um, uh, on Good Morning Australia in 1982, where they've they've he's in Northern Queensland soaking up the sun, and uh, the the interviewer is asking him about you know what else is he listening to at the moment? What else do you like? And he genuinely can't really think of any. He, he again he calls Bob Dylan the governor, and that everyone should just listen to him. And he muses Elton John for a moment, and then one second after continues to just, you know, 
belittle his his sound and his songwriting and it it just didn't seem like George was doing himself any favors and was even attempting to enjoy or appreciate any of the music from around that time and don't even get me started on punk he 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 hated punk with a a seething passion and I, I think was part of why the UK stopped embracing him so much is that his you know fun R&B American style of music was just so at odds with what they were listening to in the UK um so yeah I I I do wonder if if George had embraced the more popular sounds of the time what what kind of things he could create because I think he did limit himself in that way yes and I know that his disdain for new music even continued into the 90s you know he spoke out against U2 and Oasis and yeah. the Spice Girls. Didn't love Oasis. <laughs> I, I think he hated that the ego was the main focus in those new bands. I'm genuinely not sure like what what I think Eurythmics, uh there's I read somewhere, I don't know if it's true, but Eurythmics was um a, an inspiration for one of the songs on Cloud Nine. But otherwise I yeah, I don't think there was much in the Do you know, Rob, if there was anything that, or anything you can hear in George's music that no, I think he was yeah. a quintessential baby boomer who stopped listening to music at a certain point in his life and certainly yeah. thought by the end of the seventies that he had really no interest in it. And I think that that kind of bitterness really leaves a, a lot of sourness on his early eighties records. And in the late 80s with Cloud9 and the Traveling Wilburys, uh, he got so much of his enthusiasm back just by having a circle of friends who were making records with mm-hmm. him. So much of that coming down to Jeff Lynne, of course. But it's definitely a case where he was someone who stopped being a music fan. And honestly, like it's weird that the other Beatles who are not Paul McCartney are confronted with someone who is such a superhuman music fan, whatever the kids are into right now, Paul McCartney is not only a fan of it, he's not only listening to it, he's like trying to do his own version of it. So, you know, mm, when yeah. punk rock and new wave comes out, you know, we could argue all day about how well he did stuff like that with something like, you know, <laughs> old Siam, sir. I, I happen to be a big back oh, yeah. to the egg partisan. Yes. But I love it, back to the egg. I love back to the egg, right? Like there's no way that George could have made a back to the egg. He would have seen that is like too much of a challenge to him. In many ways, why he was inspired by the whole Traveling Wilburys project was they said, let's do this kind of stuff and not mess with what the kids are into these days. And yet Paul, because of his personality, he always wants to do what the kids are doing these days. He still does. You know, that's that's why he loves doing stuff like four or five seconds from Wilden, you know, his <laughs> Rihanna and Kanye song. He loves that song. He loves to do it live. He loves it. He has a top 10 song that he can bust out live. And that's something that was obviously very difficult for the other Beatles to live with, because how are you supposed to compete when Paul is such a innate, enthusiastic fan of new music? And for John and, and George especially, but also Ringo, it was just exhausting to try to keep up with that. Yeah. So while we're on the subject of Paul's affinity for always wanting to participate in contemporary music trends, This might be a good time to bring up the recent big news that came out the other week that a new Beatles track, the final Beatles song, will be released this year. That is according to Paul McCartney himself. And right now, headlines are describing the song like like it's going to be another example of, of Paul embracing this 
AI trend in music where, you know, we can make songs, we can make new songs sound like they're being sung by artists who are no longer with us. But I think that the use of artificial intelligence in this new Beatles song is going to be more along the lines of how they used AI in Peter Jackson's Get Back documentary, where they're able to remove all excess noises from the track and make the original take sound fresh and clean. But I'd love to get your thoughts on this new song that's going to be coming out this year. Thank you for listening to part one of this epic conversation with Elliot Roberts and Rob Sheffield. I'm your host, Jack Lawless. Be sure to check in next week for our continued conversation about George Harrison and our thoughts on the new Beatles track that will be released later this year. I'll see you soon.